1: Come with me. That the word of God says it, I believe it! And that's
0: the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome everybody, great to have you with us for another broadcast and I just want to kick things off by thanking each and every one of you who have been helping us with our pre-born campaign this month. We want to help save the lives of 350 preborn babies by the end of January. We're about halfway there right now and this is a really exciting campaign. You've heard me talk about it quite a bit, but we really do need your help. If you can give right now a gift of $28, that will buy a free ultrasound for a woman in a crisis pregnancy who walks into a crisis pregnancy center thinking she'll have an abortion. She'll be offered a free ultrasound and eight out of 10 women who get that ultrasound choose life. It is the most direct way to save pre-born lives. And this is all during Sanctity of Human Life Month when all the attention is on the cause of human life. And we can make a big difference this way. Here's how you can give 855402 Baby. That's 855402 Baby. eight five five four zero two twenty two twenty nine. Again, eight five five four zero two twenty two twenty nine. 2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Any amount you're able to give will be so helpful and so so important. So thank you so much. I know there are a lot of people who still have been saying, yes, I'm going to give, but I you know, I haven't picked up the phone yet. Well, today's the day. Please. 855-402-BABY and any amount you can give would be great. $28 pays for one free ultrasound for a woman in a crisis pregnancy. And of course, as we have the new administration about to come in this week. Uh, We have to be more concerned about the life issue than ever before. President Trump has been a fantastic pro-life president. I will just say as a matter of understatement, I don't anticipate Joe Biden will be doing the things for the life cause That President Trump did. So we got our work cut out for us. By the way, along those lines, before I get into a little bit of news here, I just want to pay tribute just personally to Joe Scheidler. Joe Scheidler has been on my show before I interviewed him. I know about his great book, Racketeer for Life, a few years back, but he died yesterday. Yesterday morning. Uh, he was the founder of the pro life movement. People referred to him as the godfather of the pro life movement. And he was an absolute gem and a giant when it came to the cause of life. And I remember back in the day in Chicago, I went on a protest once with him when he was out protesting in front of Cook County Hospital in Chicago when they decided to institute taxpayer funded abortion. And it was really neat. It was neat to be in his presence because he was so well liked and he was so honored by so many pro-lifers in the area. And I remember thinking to myself, I just think this guy's the greatest. I mean, he he fought for the life movement at a time when so many people weren't even interested in fighting abortion. He was sued later, you might remember, by the National Organization of Women and a network of abortion facilities for the so-called crime of conspiring to deprive women of the right to abortion. Do you know that case went on for over 20 years and three visits to the U.S. Supreme Court were necessary to fight that, and he ultimately won a victory in 2006, which was a huge thing. He was totally fearless, and he just put everything on the line to save pre-born babies, and I'm so grateful for his legacy and the work of Pro-Life Action League. So just pray for the family, Eric Scheidler, the rest of the family, who are... Obviously in mourning now having lost him but he left a great legacy for the cause of life. Now I think about Joe Scheidler at a time like this because we are entering into some very disturbing days as you know we're going to talk about it a lot more this week but we're we're really entering into some disturbing days. And I don't have to chronicle everything that's gone on in the last couple of months or last four years. We do that every single day on the show. But perhaps you heard about this interview that took place over on CNN. Alex Stamos is a former Facebook insider. He was on the show with Brian Stelter talking about the issue of right wing media. Now, when I play this for you, just know that this is worse than you imagine anything could be on CNN about shutting down right wing media and keep in mind the big tech censorship and the big tech cancel culture that we're already beginning to see emerge in earnest. Listen to this interview here. This is Alex Stamos giving his opinion. This is cut one.
2: It's really hard because what's happening is people are able to seek out the information that makes them feel good. Mm-hmm. It, that is what happening is that you know people have so much choice now; they can choose what their news sources are, they can choose what influencers they want to follow, um, and and they can try to seal out anything that que- helps them question that and th- i think that gets to a, a really core issue uh with how our freedoms as americans and, and the way we have treated press freedom in, in the past is being abused by these actors um, in that we have given a lot of leeway uh, both in the traditional media and on social media to people to have a very broad range of political views and it is now in the great economic interest of those individuals to become more and more radical and I think that one of the places you can see this is on that the fact that you now have competitors to Fox News on their right, OANN yes. and Newsmax which are carried by all the major cable networks um, who are trying to now outflank Fox on the right, because the moment Fox introduced any kind of realism into their reporting, immediately a bunch of people chose to put themselves into a sealed ecosystem. And they can do that both on cable. They can do it online. Um, and that becomes a, a huge challenge of figuring out how do you bring those people back into the mainstream of fact based reporting and try to get us all back into the, the same consensual reality.
0: This is just this would be hilarious if it weren't so scary Sealed ecosystem. What do you think you're doing, Alex Stamos? You're appearing on CNN. There is no more sealed ecosystem as far as getting information that's true than CNN. CNN completely panders to its progressive base. It lies. It says fiery but mostly peaceful protests when Kenosha is burning to the ground behind its reporter. The Russia Gate hoax, the Ukraine gate hoax. I don't know if we call it Ukraine gate, but... CNN is a joke and you're sitting there and you're talking to a CNN anchor about the fact that people on the right are just too much in their sealed ecosystem. And they just need to make sure these cable outlets that those crazy right wing outlets like Newsmax and One American News Network are absolutely sealed off canceling people. They, They they want the entire opposition shut down. This should terrify you. You talk about fascism. That's fascism. That's fascism. And then Stelter asks, is this going to be possible? Listen to this guy. Cut to.
2: I think we gotta do a couple things. One, there needs to be an intentional work by the social media companies collaborating together to work on violent extremism in the same way they worked on ISIS. When I started at Facebook in 2015, the number one challenge from a content perspective was the abuse of social media by the Islamic State. Um, And there was a a collaboration between the tech companies and between the tech companies and law enforcement to make it impossible for them to use the internet to recruit and radicalize mostly young Muslim men at the time around the world. Now we're talking about domestic audience in the United States and the challenge is going to be partially that, you know, ISIS did not have a domestic constituency in the United States Congress, but there is over half of the Republicans in Congress voted to overturn the election. Um, And there will be a continual political pressure on the the companies to not take it seriously. So I think first, you have Mm. to focus on those violent extremists and those companies have to be brave in that way. And second, we have to turn down the capability of these conservative influencers to reach these huge audiences. There are, are people on YouTube, for example, that have a larger day larger audience than daytime cnn and they are extremely radical and pushing extremely uh, radical views and so it's up to the facebooks and youtubes in particular to think about whether or not they want to be effectively cable networks for disinformation. And then we're going to have to figure out the OANN and Newsmax problem. You know, that these companies have freedom of speech, but I'm not sure we need Verizon, AT&T, Comcast and such to be bringing them into tens of millions of homes. Um, I, this is you know allowing people to seek out information if they really want to, but not pushing it into their faces, I think is where we're going to have to go here.
0: Oh, yeah, they're just like ISIS. Conservative media, they're just like ISIS. Clearly, they're just Newsmax. is just like ISIS. Fox in its heyday, just like ISIS. This is called demonizing your opposition a la Saul Alinsky. So then you can later, when you get this domestic terrorist bill before Congress, under a new leftist Congress, you just demonize everybody on the right as domestic terrorists. I mean, after all, there was a shaman with horns running through the Capitol. Clearly, every single Trump voter is just like that guy. Do you see what they're doing? Do you see what they're trying to do, not only to you, but to the country? We do have a lot of work ahead of us and a lot of prayer needs to be sent up to the Lord. Please, Lord, be with us. We're going to come back a lot ahead. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Janet Mefford, here to tell you about the Ministry of Preborn. That ultrasound changed everything for me. It really did. That made it all worthwhile to know that I was going to have a little blessing. And when she got here, it was just, oh my gosh. You just heard a real life testimony from a woman whose life was changed by the Ministry of Preborn. You see, when a young woman considering abortion sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she almost always chooses life for her preborn baby. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life would be without her. Preborn steps into the darkest corners and finds women in need to help them choose life. The mission of Preborn is to glorify Jesus Christ by equipping pregnancy centers nationwide to help save lives and impact moms and babies for the kingdom of God. Preborn leads the country in placing ultrasound machines and counseling women while also helping to lead them to saving faith in Jesus. In 2020 alone, over 31,000 babies were saved and over 7,000 women came to know the Lord. I got to hear and see my baby for the first time. Hearing the heartbeat made me cry. <laughs> I was certain I was going to keep my baby forever. Would you join with us at Janet Mefford today to help Preborn help women choose life for 350 babies by the end of January? All gifts are tax deductible and 100% of your gift goes toward life. One ultrasound session costs $28.00. A gift of $140 will sponsor five ultrasounds, but any gift of any size will help. $100, $200, $1,000, or maybe you could even help buy an ultrasound machine for $15,000. But whatever you can give will help. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855 402-2229. Again, call toll-free, 855-402-BABY, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com.
2: You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now, here's Janet.
0: Should the government face consequences for violating people's constitutional rights? And should it be responsible for past harms that it inflicted on people who sustained injury from that treatment? These are the questions at stake in a Supreme Court case that was argued just a few days ago. It involves two men, Chike Uzabunam, who was twice stopped from peacefully sharing his Christian faith on the campus of Georgia Gwinnett College, and also Joseph Bradford. We're joined now by Kate Anderson, Senior Counsel at Alliance Defending Freedom, to tell us more about this important case. Kate, great to have you back. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on the show again. Well, it's great to have you. Give us a little bit of background here on these men that you're representing and why this is such an important case. What happened to them? Tell us what what went on at the college because it, it's really crazy.
3: Yeah, well, government officials should be held accountable to the victims when they violate constitutional rights, and that's just what happened to our clients. Both were students at Georgia Gwinnett College in Georgia, and Chike was there as a student. He wanted to share his religious beliefs with fellow students, so he found a public place uh, on campus where he saw other people speaking about things that they cared about, and he began to engage uh, fellow students in conversation and handing out um, Christian literature. Uh, A government official, a college official came and contacted him, told him he had to stop, told him that he needed to get advanced permission, and he had to use one of two tiny speech zones. Hmm. So these zones are very small. Uh, They're open about 10% of the week, and to speak in one would be sort of like standing on a piece of notebook paper in a football field. Uh, But... Chike did what they asked him to do. Uh, He went there to speak during his reserve time, and he was stopped again, this time by two campus police officers who took his ID and told him that because someone had complained, he could not speak at all and that he could face discipline if he tried to continue. Um, So his speech was clearly shut down. A friend of his, Joseph Bradford, saw what happened to him, wanted to engage in some of the same speech, but didn't because he saw what happened to Chike. Uh, So these are pretty egregious speech violations Um, um, and that's why this case is so important.
0: Well, it's interesting. How has it gone on the lower court level? Because I know at least one lower court had said, you know, had not sided with Chique. And then there were some, I believe, that did. What, what happened on the lower court to bring it to the point where the Supreme Court needed to hear it?
3: Yes, so Chike challenged the policies from the school in court. Uh, First, the college came in and defended those policies. Then the college changed its policies, but it did nothing to address or try to remedy the harm that they did to Chike. So Chike can never go back and speak with his fellow students again. He can't have that time back. So there is a real harm there. And the college said, well, we changed the policy so we don't have to do anything about what we did in the past. And unfortunately, two courts agreed, both the Um, lower trial court and the appellate court. Um, And so that's why the case went to the US Supreme Court on the question of whether government officials can be held accountable uh, to the victims when they violate constitutional rights, even if they later change a policy.
0: Wow. Well, I'm going to come back to this in a minute. I want to return, though, to this issue of free speech zones, because I know this has become a thing on college campuses. What is the legality and, more importantly, the constitutionality of saying you can have free speech, but only on this little square of pavement or grass or what have you? What What is the you know, what does the Constitution tell us about free speech when it is applied in this kind of a context?
3: Well, the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution affirms free speech in public, including on college campuses. So the First Amendment is all a student should need to be able to speak freely on campus. Uh, But we do see universities coming in and establishing these speech zones. And so they'll put this place kind of off to the side on campus, um, very small locations, only open a certain amount of time, and say so that's the only place that you can engage in free speech. And that's just unconstitutional. It's plainly so. And actually, Georgia Gwinnett was warned that their speech zone policies were unconstitutional about three years before they applied them against Chique. Uh So this is a problem we're seeing across the country and something that could be impacted Uh, by a case like what's in front of the Supreme Court, when the Supreme Court rules that these officials can be held accountable for these past violations, then that incentivizes them to change the policies faster.
0: Well, now, when it comes to these free speech zones, I guess, dealing just with Georgia Gwinnett College, were they evenly applying people who wanted to engage in speech like Chique's, you know, different religions, apart from, you know, a Christian who wants to hand out tracts or what have you, were they applying this fairly, at least? I mean, I'm not saying that either way, it's good, but or were they targeting Christians in particular?
3: It's a bit unclear. In this case, Chike certainly saw other students being able to speak freely on campus, play loud music in other areas. Um, but it's not entirely clear because the case didn't go forward very far um, exactly what kind of animus may have been in place by the officials.
0: Wow. How you know, How do you deal with the issue of free speech zones in general? I mean, obviously, it's a very wide thing. Would this case potentially, if the Supreme Court decides in your favor and your client's favor and, and does kind of a broad-based opinion, could that affect potentially free speech zones beyond just Georgia Gwinnett?
3: Uh, Yes, in that uh, when the Supreme Court comes in and we saw the justices and their questions very concerned about this idea that if government officials change policies going forward, that that doesn't let them off the hook for past violations. They still owe something to the victim. So if we affirm that that is the rule um, across the country, it incentivizes government officials when they're put on notice, um, as we had put Georgia Gwinnett on notice before this, that speech policies like these speech zones are unconstitutional, they're more willing to change it. Um, If all they have to do is change the policy later and they get a free pass, once they're actually challenged, that incentivizes them to keep those policies. Um, So I think this kind of a decision could have a big impact, even though it's a little bit indirect, um, on those issues, as well as other contexts. Here we saw the ACLU um, and other uh, really groups from across the ideological spectrum come in and side with Chigae and file friend of the court brief supporting him because they recognize that in all contexts, uh, free speech and other constitutional rights, we need to be able to hold government accountable for those violations, even if they stop violating other people's rights in the future.
0: no, that's important because you're right. If there's some kind of, you know, penalty for violating free speech, then they would be more likely, I would think, to implement policies that recognized it. I thought it was interesting. You guys pointed out on your website that many of the justices' questions about this case recognize that nominal damages are often the best way to provide a court remedy in a lot of different contexts. What kind of remedy are you seeking, if any? for Chique. I mean, what what is an appropriate punishment, do you think, for Georgia Gwinnett for having violated his rights?
3: Well, this was a case where we sought nominal damages and it's the kind of case where nominal damages come into play, which is why you saw the justice's Speaking about it. Uh, when you're dealing with constitutional freedoms, it's very difficult to put a price on those. Really, these are priceless freedoms. Uh, and so the courts have assigned this idea of nominal damages. It's a small amount that has to be paid, um, but it's an important amount because it is a symbol for how important these rights that are hard to quantify are and that we yeah. are going to force officials to be
0: held accountable. Why do you think that, I mean, this is speculatory, obviously, but why why would the college go to such lengths to shut students up? I mean, you would think just the hassle of it and having to go to court and having to fight. I mean, this is why cases like this are so important, you know, and how important it is for Chike to have gone ahead and filed suit on this. This is very, very vital for other people. But why do you think colleges like this would go to the mat over this? Why not just say, yeah, we're in favor of free speech and and not have to go through all of these legal wranglings?
3: I don't know, I think that's a deeper cultural question about where we are right now, but uh, one would certainly hope that uh, colleges would recognize how important a robust discussion and debate on campus is and how important free speech is in that context, particularly there. Our Center for Academic Freedom has over 400 victories um, with these kinds of cases, uh, various speech policies that violated the Constitution that they've had to challenge and will continue challenging. But it does seem to be a widespread problem that I hope we see a shift uh, coming out of
0: that. Oh, I agree completely. It was interesting that Justice Kavanaugh stated that history and common law and case law from the Supreme Court and also law and other circuit courts of appeal all work against this college's position. Did he get specific at all in bringing that information forward and saying, you know, this is just overwhelming that this college cannot do it and, and they need to, you know, furnish some sort of remedy to Chike?
3: Well, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the last court to rule on this, is a bit of an outlier on this issue. Most courts recognize that constitutional rights are so important that we vindicate them with nominal damages, and we force government officials to do something to repair the harm in the past, not just do things going forward. Um, and so many, many circuits, as he pointed out, uh, have that rule. This has been the rule in the common law throughout our history. So there is a lot of legal basis for the Supreme Court to rule in Chike's favor. And I think that's what Justice
0: Kavanaugh was suggesting there. Interesting. With the free speech zones, one of the things that I think I've heard more than once is that they don't want students to get out of hand, or they don't want people who are going to come and try to talk to college students to cause chaos on campus. So that is I remember, if I'm remembering correctly, has been one of the excuses. What is actually the right thing to do to just, uh, to avoid chaos on campus? Because you would think, yeah, you know, if you're walking from one building to another as a college student and you have, you know, 18 people trying to talk to you while you're trying to walk down the sidewalk, it can be a little bit disruptive. What is the right, response for colleges to be able to grant free speech, but also control chaos a bit? Not that Chike was engaging in chaos, but just as a general principle.
3: Right, Chike was very peacefully speaking with fellow students, Um, but what we've seen in practice is that when chaos sort of erupts on campus, it has nothing to do with the speech zones, and the chaos is happening outside the speech zones, so they're really trying to solve a problem that they're not solving and probably isn't there at all. Um, I remember being on campus and how many different groups would set up tables and engage people in conversation, and it was a very healthy environment where people could engage in robust debate. Um, So I think that colleges need to take a hard look at how valuable that is for college students and for the campus
0: environment. Well, I think that's excellent. Kate Anderson with Alliance Defending Freedom will keep an eye on this case. Kate, thank you so much for the update. Thanks for having me. You bet. Take care. We'll be back on Janet Meffert today.
2: This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford.
0: In Matthew chapter 24, the disciples asked Jesus what the sign of his coming would be and what the signs would be of the end of the age. You'll remember this passage. Jesus answered and said, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, given the recent unfolding events, can any of us doubt that we are truly approaching the end of the age and the imminent return of our Lord and Savior? So how do we get ready, and how do we honor the Lord in the midst of the spiritual battles that we're facing? We're going to talk about it all now with Troy Anderson. He's a Pulitzer Prize-nominated investigative journalist and co-author of the book we'll be discussing called The Military Guide to Armageddon. Troy, so good to have you here. How are you doing?
1: Hi, uh, Janet. Uh, I'm, I'm doing great. It's uh, very good to be back on your show. Well,
0: it's great to have you. You have written this book, I know, with someone who has been in the military for a number of decades and has done tours. This is uh, Colonel David Giamman. And And tell us a little bit about what the military angle has to do with the end times.
1: Yeah, so my co-authors, uh, you know, uh, Chaplain and Colonel David Giamona, he he got a hold of me in uh, early 2018. He'd written sort of a draft of a book that was at that time called The Making of a Warrior, and he was looking for somebody to help him edit and, and write this and get it published. And it, did, it just struck me when he called me that, because I knew about these Gallup polls that say about 70% of Americans highly respect the military, and then it drops precipitously from there. It's like, for pastors, 20% for Congress, 10% for the media. Hmm. And so I thought to myself, if America and the Church will listen to anybody about the dangers we're facing about Bible prophecy, they'll listen to a U.S. Army chaplain and colonel. So I agreed to help him write this book, and he actually told me that, that the Lord had told him that by the time this book came out, it'd be a completely different world. <laughs> and uh, and this was long before, you know, COVID-19 and all this recent chaos. So that, that was sort of the, the, the genesis of this book.
0: Well, and that's interesting because I can't remember a year in my life that has been as tumultuous. I think a lot of us could agree on that. And what do you take from that when you're looking at the recent events and you're looking at passages like Matthew 24? How do you interpret what is going on around us right now in in terms of the end times?
1: Over the last decade, I've been investigating this question. Are, are we really moving into these end-time events that Jesus and the the prophets in the Bible talked about? I've done over uh, 200 interviews. Uh, on one side, you know, sort of a who's who of major faith leaders, Billy Graham, Tim LaHaye, Hal Lindsey, Greg Laurie, Rabbi Jonathan Kahn. The overwhelming consensus, they believe that we, we are moving into this period of time. Billy Graham told me signs of the end of the age are converging for the first time since Jesus made those predictions but even more surprising there's all these experts at existential risk institutes at Harvard and MIT and, and Princeton and they say there's there's many grave dangers to to humanity they say we're they, they believe we're approaching the end of human civilization you know Oxford uh, releases an annual report of the top 10 dangers you know of course it's nuclear war artificial intelligence run amok, but they also cite a global totalitarian government, you know, along with, you know, asteroid impact and things like that. So there's sort of a consensus on both sides that we're at this very uh, dangerous point in history.
0: Well, that's right. And we, we we think about how the Lord said nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. What do you see in that regard around the world where we are seeing an increase in wars, increase in conflict?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the super sign of the end times was, was the rebirth of Israel in 1948. And it seems that we've been sort of on this countdown since that time. You know, we've seen lots of, you know, wars and conflict. And, and today, what we're seeing happening is, uh, you know, Russia and China uh, are, you know, beefed up their military and and i I actually interviewed some generals for this book and they you know they essentially told me that we're, we're in a very vulnerable position from in a military standpoint because of just everything that's been developed techno- technologically by by our enemies. And then, of course, you have all the conflict in the Middle East. The Bible says that's going to be the hot spot for this whole thing. Uh, so, so essentially, all the all the players that the Bible describes in military military terms are sort of in place now for you know this this period of time that uh, you know the Book of Revelation uh, uh, goes through.
0: Yeah. Well, Colonel Giamona, uh having been in the military for as long as he's been in the military, and having done tours in places like Iraq and Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia, how does he see our times? In a way that a civilian might not. In other words, with his kind of military experience, does that have any bearing on how he is interpreting the signs of the times?
1: Yeah, you know, he, he served in actual—I mean, the chaplain—but he served in actual combat in, in Iraq and, and several other places, and so I mean, he—he's seen the death and destruction that war brings, and he's—you know—he's helped these—you know—the soldiers and their families—you know—get through these these tragedies. And so, one of the things he's he's told me is that uh, one reason why he thought you know the Lord wanted him to uh, you know write write this book, uh, us write this book, is because the church isn't ready for what's what's what he believes, or what I believe is about to happen. <laughs> you know, we've sort of had this country club church for many decades, and uh, you know, much of the church has sort of been asleep, and now we're all sort of waking up to the great dangers that we're facing because we've been moving into persecution. What else could, could be happening here? And so, the colonel felt very strongly. That the God was calling him to help wake up and prepare the Church and, and get them what the military calls battle ready. So that's part, part of the focus of this uh, book.
0: Well, and that's important too, because we've seen the numbers recently. I know just in the last few days, I've seen the numbers from open doors on how many Christians are under, not just a little bit of persecution, but severe persecution. It's 340 million Christians around the world. Those are just the extreme cases. So we're seeing the rise in persecution of the church, but you're right. When you look at the church in the United States, I would argue very strongly that we have been asleep. What has put us to sleep? I mean, And here we are, a country that has more access to more Bibles and more Christian books and more Christian ministries and all of this stuff that would help us to prepare for the actual return of Christ or to help us to prepare prepare for the end times what's wrong with us? Why haven't we been more prepared? Why have we been asleep when we've had so many tools at our disposal to get us prepared?
1: You know, the, the colonel's talked about this and, and, you know, he he grew up in the Jesus movement. I, I you know, I was like 11 years old when I got saved, uh, sort of the height of the Jesus movement back in the late seventies. At that time, you know, you had Hal Lindsey's book out, The Late Great Planet Earth. Yep. And, you know, I remember like wearing like a Jesus is coming t-shirt when I was a kid. <laughs> and, um, and so there was, there was all this, you know, excitement that the Lord was returning soon, and then there was, I think there was some book came out that predicted, supposedly, that Jesus would return in 1988, yep. and of course, there was all kinds of false predictions that were made, and, and when that didn't happen, people became disillusioned, and so the Church sort of stopped talking about it, because it became sort of controversial. But, I, you know, what the colonel says, he believes that was sort of a strategy of the enemy to get us sort of off guard, so we, we stopped talking about you know most churches no longer talk about bioprosy, and yet now you know all the evidence everybody pretty much says that they believe it's really happening and yet the church is you know largely not uh, talked about it so Uh, it involves some spiritual warfare to sort of help put us to sleep.
0: Right. I I think there's some truth to that, that there was so much emphasis on Bible prophecy back in the 70s and and even into the 80s and such an interest in all of those things. And when those false yeah, I remember those false prophecies about Jesus is going to return. What is 88 reasons that Jesus will return in 1988? And anybody who's read the verse about Jesus saying no man knows the day or the hour or only the Father, it just kind of says, why do we keep I've seen people do this when we already know from scripture that there's no way anybody could know the day or the hour. Um, th- this is frustrating, though, because shouldn't there be more of a sense of urgency or do you see Christians becoming more urgent and more concerned about the end times now? Has COVID-19 have the events of the last year in your mind woken a, a lot of Christians up or-, or-, or how do you see it now in in the wake of all of the turmoil that we're seeing around us?
1: Yeah, I think over the last several years, there's been sort of a not not just an awakening in America, but but a global awakening to to, to Bible prophecy and to the end times and what we're seeing happen now. In fact, there was a, a recent poll came out from Lifeway Research. It said that nine in ten pastors now see signs of the end times and current events. So, you know, there, there's sort of this, this you know you know a great consensus now that this, this is probably really happening, and so. So that that's why we felt so strongly to write this book is to to teach people, you know, help help further awaken the church and believers and just people in general to what's happening, and then take them through what the Bible says, you know, what we need to do to prepare,
0: well, you know, that's the kind great. of
1: practical kind of steps, and really from military terms to, to biblical terms.
0: I'll tell you what, let's get into that when we come back from this break. Troy Anderson with us, the military guide to Armageddon, is the book. We'll return right after this on Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mafford for Bible League International. Mabel walks 18 miles to church every Sunday. She lives in Zimbabwe, where churches are widely scattered in remote regions of this African country. That's one reason why she travels so far. The other reason she walks nine miles each way is that the gospel has truly captured her heart. After coming to faith in Jesus Christ, Mabel reads and studies her Bible, and she's discovered that the gospel is meant to be shared with others. So with the help of Bible League International. She's learning to share her faith and she's helping to see a church develop closer to her village. Bibles are desperately needed in Africa and around the world right now, and you can send one to a Bibleist believer today for only $5, or $50 will send 10 Bibles. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800 Yes Word. That's 800 Y E S W O R D. 800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com the healthcare open enrollment period has ended in most states. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up for Liberty HealthShare. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not in Insurance, So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT or 855-585-4237. It is very, very clear that the Lord could return at any time, and we comfort one another with these words. We are closer to the return of Jesus Christ than ever before, but we are also closer to the end times and the end of the earth, as the Bible tells us. The Military Guide to Armageddon is the book we're discussing with author Troy Anderson. And let's talk about some of these strategies that you write about, Troy, to prepare our lives and our souls for the end times. What are some of those strategies?
1: Well, you know, the, the, the Bible is essentially a book of miracles. It's, it's God intervenes in human affairs and uses all sort of these regular people <laughs> to do all these extraordinary things. And the Bible tells us to put on the full armor of God, the, the sword of the Spirit, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, all these different things, so we can fight spiritual battles and be victorious and, and successful in these battles. And so what we believe that, that God has called us to do is to help help the church put on the full armor of God so that we can do the Lord's work as we move into the end times, spreading the gospel and all the things that Jesus told us to do. So the, the the Bible actually has all kinds of military kind of language in it. You know, King David was in 60, the Bible's 90 battles. Uh, I was re- reading First Chronicles the other day. It describes God as Lord God of armies. It describes the angels as organized in military structure. And of course, you know, remember the, the song when we were kids about, you know, soldiers of Christ. So... So this is one of the things that God wants us to do. He wants us to engage in spiritual warfare and, and help, you know, bring people to the Lord.
0: Well, that's right. Fulfilling the Great Commission, obviously, is is the main thing that we need to be about as a church. But when you talk about Ephesians 6, we often reference that passage, which is so awesome when we think about what we have to do in order to stand in the evil day, as that passage talks about. But give some specifics, if you would, Troy, to the Christian who says, all right, I love that passage about putting on the, you know, the shield of faith and the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, but that's metaphorical. What should I be doing as a Christian to live out that passage?
1: In the military, they have what's called the making of a warrior process, and so essentially transforms a regular citizen into a soldier who can fight in wars, and so what the colonel did in this book is he took his three decades of military and chaplain training, and he also has you know theological degrees. And translates that to take take you as you read this book it has exercises in it and and things to do and you know nuggets of wisdom it sort of takes you through this making of a warrior process to help you mature in your faith and essentially become an end times warrior of God that's sort of the how the book is designed and uh, so there's, there's very practical steps in here and all kinds of you know very interesting things It's it comes from you know his three decades of the uh, you know uh, wisdom and experience in the military.
0: Yeah, give us give us an example, though, Troy. Give us one of the nuggets, just so we can hold on to something and understand what you're talking about.
1: Okay. Well, yeah. Chapter three is called "Knowing Your Enemy," and so in the military, uh, it's, it's very important that you study your enemy very, very, you know, very closely. Yeah. Uh, you know, figure out their weaknesses, figure out all their strategies. You know, so so for instance, today, I mean, we are experiencing unprecedented deception you know there's all kinds of you know psyops propaganda fake news mm-hmm. you know billions and billions of dollars are being spent to manipulate us and you know, to control us essentially. And so it's, it's very important to, you know, use the Holy Spirit, use the wisdom that God gives us to sort of see our way through this. So we understand what's really happening and then we can, you know, do what the Lord has called us to do. So yeah. that, that's one example. Yeah, of
0: this that's important. And now, now one of the things that is mentioned in your book is the fact that David, King David, is kind of a template for the warrior. How is David somebody we should look to when we're considering this subject?
1: So, so that you know, God said that David is a man after his own heart. So, even though David, was, you know, obviously a, a flawed guy, uh, he was very brave and courageous. And if you if you read the Bible, that something that strikes you is that many of these people that God used were very brave and courageous. And uh, and so the, the, that's one of the things we, we hope to accomplish with, with this book is to uh, fill people with, with hope and encouragement, but also bravery and courage, because we're we're going to need that uh, in, in the, you know, months and years ahead. So King David is a great example, a very, you know, brave guy. Of course, you know, as a boy, you know, he took a, a slingshot and challenged Goliath, this this giant with, you know— hundreds of pounds of armor and a gigantic spear and all all the israelites were afraid of him but david just a young boy was brave and courageous and he challenged him and then you know of course you know he used a slingshot to throw the rock at, at Goliath and yep. hit him in the head and killed him. And then he yep. chopped his head off, yep. you know? So that, that's a good example of, uh, you know, being brave and courageous in this, this spiritual battle as we move into the end times.
0: Well, right. One of the things that strikes me about David that you note in the book is that he always asked for instructions from the Lord before battle. And that's interesting because I think there is a tendency within each of us to just rush ahead and pray that God will bless whatever we're doing. But how does that come into play when we are, you know, Employing these battle strategies ourselves, saying, "Lord, you know, spending time in prayer, spending time in praise, and and spending time really with the Lord and in fellowship with the Lord as we go along, and being, you know, absolutely connected to Him, the, the branch and the vine, and and being rooted in Jesus Christ before we go into battle, and before we try to do what we think he wants he wants us to do, to, to spend time with Him before that.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's incredibly important to develop a routine of a prayer life know bible study uh, fellowship worship because you you need to hear from the hear from the lord hear from the holy spirit it's incredibly important to obey the lord that is the most important thing we could do and uh, so if you if you obey what he says in his word and you obey what you learn you know in in fellowship with, with the lord then uh, <clears throat> that helps you helps god take you into your destiny that he has for your life god has an amazing destiny for all of us any, any, you know, the Holy Spirit helps guide us into that so that we can fulfill the, the work that the Lord has for us.
0: Yeah. Now, there's an end times checklist that you write about, and this is kind of the end times events described in the Word of God. And, you know, the first one is very striking because you cite Second Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, discussing global moral decay and ungodliness. I think we're there. Would you say, Troy, we're there? Oh, it's It's across oh. the world and getting worse by the minute.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've actually seen different surveys. I think from the American Bible Society, saying something like, you know, eight and eight and nine people now say they see a moral free fall, you know, in America and around the world. So there's, yeah, I mean, this this wickedness and immorality is just rampant, and you know, the Bible told us we, we you know, we would see that as we moved into into the end times.
0: Yeah, so now when we're talking about Armageddon, this is, again, when people will go back to the book of Revelation in chapter 16, that details the bowls of wrath that God will send upon the earth, and then Armageddon proceeds, you know, the gathering together in Armageddon precedes the seventh bowl of wrath. What should we know about that time period in particular, what Armageddon will be like?
1: So the the Bible talks about the, the tribulation period. And uh, essentially, this is, uh, you know, as, as it's you know, commonly interpreted, will be a, a seven-year period of, of great tribulation upon, upon the world. You know, the, the book of Revelation, if you sort of add it all up, it sounds like about, you know, four-fifths of all humanity will, will perish during this time and all kinds of wars and plagues and disasters and all kinds of terrible things. And so towards the end of this period, the second half, God actually pours out His wrath upon the world for all the sins of the world, throughout all time. And, um, and so it's, it's definitely something you don't, you don't want to be here for. And, and, and most, most, you know, Christians, they don't believe if you, you know, give your heart to the Lord, ask him to forgive you for your sins, you won't be here for that time. You know, there's some disagreement on, you know, will the rapture occur at the beginning or the midpoint of the tribulation, but almost everybody agrees that you won't be here for the time when God does pour out his wrath upon the world.
0: Right. But what, what can we expect prior to the time that the Lord takes us to himself?
1: So, so this is is the big question is, I mean, over the last year, we've already seen the the COVID situation, all the chaos. Now we have the elite talking about rolling out the Great Reset this year, you know, some kind of move into a a world socialist system. And so, a lot of these things the Bible predicts uh, that would happen, we're starting to see, you know, initial signs of this occurring. So, that's why we wrote this book. We want to get the church ready and prepared for whatever difficulties and challenges we'll face. You know, in, in the years ahead, and also to to bring you know bring as many people into the kingdom as possible, encourage as many people as possible to accept the Lord and ask them to forgive this forgive them of their sins.
0: Right? Do you see any signs that the urgency when it comes to evangelism is growing in the church, or are we still need needing to get there in the future?
1: Well, you, you know, in my last book, Trumpocalypse, uh Paul McGuire and I we called for a national Day of repentance. And then we haven't had one since Abraham Lincoln was president. And then I met uh, Kevin Jessup when I was editor of Chrism magazine. He told me he felt called to lead a national repentance movement. Uh, He started networking. Uh, He asked us to write the White House executive summary for this. And then he managed to persuade Rabbi Jonathan Kahn to be the spokesman. And then the event actually happened. It took place September 26th in the National Mall. 75 to 100,000 people showed up. It was called the RETURN, National Global Day of Prayer and Repentance. Millions of people watched it online. And later on, he told us a quarter million people gave their lives to the Lord. Wow. So that, that's just one one thing that we're seeing happening. Yep. Uh, Greg Laurie just came out and said, that I think, like 200,000 people came to the Lord this year. So I'm hearing similar reports of ministries around the world that this countless people are turning to God because they, they recognize what's happening.
0: I love that. The Military Guide to Armageddon, Troy Anderson with us. Troy, God bless you. Thank you so much for being with us.
1: Yeah, yeah it's a great honor. Thank you.
0: All right. You take care. Thank you for joining us on Janet Mefford today. We'll see you next time.